0: Well, I want to begin our time this morning by returning to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, I think this is a fitting place for us to begin our time this morning. Just simply by way of introduction, really, as we study our or continue our study on this reality of faith that finishes well. Hebrews chapter 11, of course, is familiar to us as Christians. We return to it oftentimes because the overall theme of that entire chapter is exactly what we're talking about in our study time through Second Peter, the issue of faith, the doctrine of faith. It's an important chapter of Scripture for a whole host of reasons, but one of the most significant reasons is that it shows us what true faith does. It doesn't just show us faith in the sense of some ethereal idea, some concept that's floating out there in the middle of space, but it really shows us what faith does. Sometimes I think evangelicalism has presented faith, the whole doctrine of faith and the idea of faith in a way that, that leaves it somewhat as an empty truth, removed of its real weight, removed of its real sense of what it means. In other words, it's presented as something necessary for salvation. You cannot get saved without faith. Evangelicalism, I think, has been at least faithful to say that over the decades. But after that, it seems as if what is touted by means of walking in faith is just go about in life doing the best you can. Just go about in life seeing and hoping that you can get through. Try to cope as best you can with life. Avoid difficulty when you're able to avoid difficulty. Don't think too much about how you live, because after all, once saved, always saved. It's kind of how it's presented. That's kind of the idea, I think, most often when you ask someone about Christianity and about faith. And with the way faith is talked about, it's not hard sometimes to get the idea that faith is good for salvation, but after that, it's rather ineffective. It really doesn't do anything for you or with you, or that you frankly shouldn't do anything with it. It has been your law, the the key, if you will, into this family, into this new salvation. But after that, don't worry about it too much. That's one of the reasons why I think it's appropriate for us to turn here to Hebrews chapter 11, and why I believe it's so helpful for us when we think about faith, because it shows us that faith is much more than simply a formula for salvation. It shows us that real saving faith is conviction in action. Conviction in action. In other words, faith isn't just a concept. Faith, in in a real way, is a verb. It's an action word, or at least it produces action, or it should produce action action. Just look at it with me here from Hebrews chapter 11, as we just kind of lay some groundwork for us in our own thinking. He says, now faith, verse one, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, that is by faith, the men of old gained approval. How so, writer of Hebrews? How so? Well, by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God. How do any of us know how the world was created? As Christians, we know how the world was created, not because someone was there, because no one was there when the world was created other than God. It's not because someone was there, it was because God said, this is how I did it. By faith we know and understand how the worlds were made so that what we see was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. In other words, he believed what God said. He believed that God was deserving of the glory and honor that he said he and declares himself to be, and Abel offers to God believing that. His faith produced action. Enoch the same way by faith was taken up. The writer of Hebrews says Enoch was taken up, not because Enoch was somehow somebody who in essence was without sin by him in and of himself. No, he was taken up because God was pleased with him, and the only way God was pleased with him was because Enoch believed God. It was by faith. Without faith, he says in verse 6, it's impossible to please God. That's a commentary on the last phrase of the verse before that. You know, if Enoch was pleasing to God, it wasn't because Enoch in some way in and of himself was pleasing to God. It was because God granted Enoch faith to believe, and Enoch there was pleasing to God. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. Right There's the danger of rejecting God and rejecting belief in God. You are damned and damnable because without faith it's impossible to please God. You must first believe that God is. Noah, the same way, he goes on to say in verse 7, Noah being warned by God. God tells Noah this is what's going to happen and what does Noah do? Noah believes God. Noah has faith in what God has said, and so Noah begins to take action. He told him about things not yet seen. It's going to rain, Noah. And so Noah does what God says. He prepares the ark, and God uses that ark to save Noah and his family. Abraham's the same way. By faith, Abraham, when he was called God called Abraham, Abraham, go forth, go out of the land to a land I'm going to tell you, a land you know not of, go. What did he do? He obeyed. Abraham's faith was seen in action. He was going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Again, that harkens us back to the very truth of verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. In other words, it's a firm confidence in what God has said, and it is the outward action, the conviction of things not seen. It's the outward action of doing the very thing based upon the firm confidence you had on the things that you hoped for. Hebrews chapter 11 goes down through the gamut speaking of Abraham again and Abraham's wife Sarah speaks about Abraham offering up Isaac because he believed and Isaac blessing his sons because he believed what God said and Jacob blessing his sons because of what God said and Joseph telling his sons to do this with his own Bones believing what God had said and Moses again being hidden by his own parents because his parents believe what God said. When Moses grew up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Why? Because he chose rather to endure ill treatment with God's, the people of God, than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Notice verse 26, considering the reproach of Christ. Moses was an Old Testament saint. Christ in the Old Testament. Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. Why? Because he was looking for the reward. He was had assurance in the things hoped for. He had conviction of things not seen. It goes on and on and on and on. Those who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, verse 33, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. They were made strong from weakness. They became mighty in war. Foreign armies they put to flight. Women received back the dead. Then it gets to the part we don't like to hear. Others experience mockings by faith. They trusted God and so they continued to endure, even though someone was saying you're all crazy, you're a bunch of fanatics, you're a bunch of religious wackos. They remained faithful. They continued to endure through mockings and scourgings and yes, chains and imprisonments. They were even stoned because of their faith. They were sawn in two and they remained faithful. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. Sometimes they had to hide in sheepskins and goatskins. They went without. They were destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. People of whom the world isn't even worthy to have on their lips. All of these gained approval through their faith, it says. Testimony. All of these have a testimony that their faith was real because their faith was seen in action. Their faith wasn't just words. It wasn't just an ethereal thing. It wasn't just this fire insurance that they carried around in their cloak. It was real. They lived it out. And so the writer of Hebrews can say in chapter 12, therefore, since we have that great cloud of witnesses going ahead of us, let us therefore also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin, which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance. The race that is set before us. What race? The faith race, the faith race, the trusting in what God has said, the living out what we say we believe in action. Well, how do we do that? By fixing our eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. By remaining steadfast, looking to Him, following what He says, being so tied to the Word of God that the Word of God comes out of us in action in every place and in every setting. Consider Him, it says, who endured such hostility by sinners against Himself. Why? That you may not grow weary that you may not lose heart. The implication is that the Christian life is not simply just believe in Jesus Christ, sit back and see what happens. The Christian life is believe upon Jesus Christ because your sins are forgiven by faith in Christ and now live out that faith. Live out that faith. Faith is the firm confidence, the assurance. That's what assurance means, firm confidence. Immovable confidence of the hope for things, what are the things we hope for? everything that God has promised to us, everything that God has said those are the hoped for things we have firm confidence in that, and therefore we have conviction of things we do not see. It's very plain language. You and I do not see Jesus, but we believe in what God has declared concerning Him and His Word. We believe what God has said. We are convinced of the things hoped for. We have conviction. We are sure of it, and therefore we are immovable. We are unfearful in our faith. were like Sarah. Hebrews 11:11. 11, 11. She received the ability to conceive even beyond the years of normal the normal process for a woman to be in the bearing years to have children. Why? Because she considered him faithful who had promised. You see, that's where our faith lies. It lies in the faithfulness of him who promised. And that surety ought to be producing in us action, action in our lives that reflects that faith. But beloved, that is exactly where the Apostle Peter is taking us in our study of Second Peter. We'll turn over to our study of 2 Peter chapter 1. Because this is exactly where Peter has taken us. We're at the place where we cannot miss the connection with what Peter has already told us in the previous verses and how that connects itself with where we find ourselves this morning. Remember that in the first four verses of Second Peter, Peter has reminded us of the character and nature of this faith, of this Hebrews 11 faith. The faith that we have received from God. Peter reminds us of its very nature and the very character of it. It is a faith that begins and has its origin in the very heart and mind of God. It is not produced by men. It comes from God and it has made us partakers of the divine nature through a, the true knowledge of Him who called us. In other words, faith, this gift of faith that God has granted to you has opened your eyes to who God is. Has given you understanding concerning the truth about your own sinfulness and about the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so Peter says it is because of that It is because of this knowledge of God and of Jesus your Lord. It is because of this divine power that He has granted to you. It is because of all of these precious promises that now we can look forward to what we're to do with it. What do we do with that? Notice how He says it in verse 5. Now, for this very reason also. See, that says it, doesn't it? That That's the crux of it, isn't it? We, we, we read what the first four verses say, that, that we have been saved by God. We have been given an understanding of God. We have been equipped by God. We have, we know the promises of God. We, we understand that we're a partaker of the divine nature that we have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the dominion of his kingdom. We know that we are no longer under the corruption of this world by its own lust. Now, for that reason also, what do we do with it? Peter says, because I've already reminded you of these things, now applying all diligence in your faith, applying all diligence in your conviction about what God has said and what God has given you, in your faith, he says, supply, supply. And then he lists seven different actions. In your faith, supply, many lists, seven actions. Now, it's very important that we understand something here about Christianity. Notice that Peter does not ask us as Christians to do anything as a Christian until, until we hear about and until we understand all that God has done for us and to us. Do you see that? In other words, verse 5 logically follows verses 1 through 4, and the truth of verses 1 through 4 come before the truth that he's going to show us here. And I need to emphasize this because there are a whole lot of Christians professing to know Jesus Christ within evangelicalism that have confused that reality. In other words, they take justification and they put it subordinate to the process of sanctification. They think by means of doing Christian stuff, therefore you get all those things that God has shown us, he has given us in verses 1 to 4. And that is not true at all. If we do Christian things they say, then that is when you come to know God. In other words, you're a Christian if and when you live a certain kind of life. But beloved, that is not the gospel. That is not the truth of Scripture. That is not what the Scriptures teach. That is not what the Bible tells us about true Christianity. The gospel never asks anyone to do anything in order to be a Christian. Why? Because man cannot do anything truly spiritual by his own nature. It's impossible. He cannot. By nature, man is spiritually dead. He is dead. His sin has separated him from God. He is hostile to God and anything that he does that he might define as being righteous because he did it and he did it good. He was a good moral person. God sees it for what it is and God calls it simply filthy rags. Filthy rags. That is simply to say that the true gospel has no interest in any of man's attempts at piety. Piety. The true gospel has no interest in us trying to attain some level of spirituality. And if we do, then God saves us. Now, the gospel has no interest in man's attempts at piety until God first saves a person by means of the gospel. Duty always follows faith. Man at his best is a sinner in need of a savior. That's it. And man, by his efforts, can try to find God. Man, by all of his best efforts, can lock himself in a closet for decades if he wants to, away from the world, by himself, cloistered only alone, separating himself from all the influences that might come to him by others and try to clean up his life and in the end he will be no closer to God when he comes out than when he went in. Why? Because before man is called to do anything, God must make it possible for man to do what he commands. We can never forget either intellectually or down deep in our own hearts and moving us along, we can never forget that dead people don't talk and dead people don't walk. You cannot forget that. The only people who talk and walk are living people. And that is what the gospel of God does. It makes the dead live. Live. And so that is why Peter has written it this way. That's why the gospel writers write the way they write. That is why they say what they say in the order that it is given. Because until God calls by his own glory and virtue, no man will spiritually live. You cannot have verse 5 coming before verses 2 through 4. It cannot happen. God must call according to His own glory and excellence or you'll never be able to do in any kind of way to rightly live out this faith you say you have. And so Peter is saying it is because you have been granted genuine faith because now you have all things pertaining to life and godliness because now in Christ you have and understand the great and precious promises that you know have been given to you and you know they are true because of the one who made them and because of the power of God to, who who resides in you for these very reasons he says apply all diligence In your faith, supply all of these things. So you can truly see that the Christian life is a balanced life. It's not lived on the extremes, it's not attained, and it is not lived out on the edges. No one becomes a Christian by doing anything. That's one extreme. You cannot get into the kingdom of heaven living out here on the extreme, thinking that you can do all your stuff in order to enter into the kingdom of heaven. That's the extreme. It doesn't matter how hard you work. Your efforts accomplish only one thing. They accomplish deception. You are deceived as a person into thinking that you are good enough. But there's something just as dangerous on the other side, on the other extreme, and that is for a Christian to remain passive. To a Christian to just sit back and say, I believe God, but I'm not going to even do anything. I don't need to do anything. I just let go and let God It's damning to think that you can earn your salvation, but it's also damning to think that in your belief, you can throw off any kind of effort at all. There are those within evangelicalism that will say that any kind of effort at spiritual growth is wrong. And anybody who says you must obey, you must do these things, because you're a Christian would say, well, that's just works. Well, yes, it's works, but it's not works to earn salvation. It's works because of salvation. So on the one hand, you have a legalist who is striving to gain salvation, and on the other hand, you have those that we've heard the term antinomian. They're anti-law. They're hyper-grace people, if you will. The no-law person. It's all grace. No effort on my part at all to do anything. I don't need to do anything. Peter is showing us here that none of those is the true Christian life. The true Christian life is one lived in balance. Lived in balance. One that understands that God is the only one who saves and God is the only one who equips. And then once saved, it understands that we're to make every effort to grow in our faith. Not so that we get saved, but because we are. So we know what God has done for us. Now, this is what we are to do in our faith. Peter says, in your faith, by means of your faith, that's the idea, by means of your trust in what God has done to you and for you, supply, supply. Now, I want us to just stop right there for a second. Just simply to say this, supply does not mean give it some effort. Give it a portion. Give it a piece. It does not mean, well, here's enough for today. No, the word is a word that they used in the ancient times when they were putting a play together. Because when they put a play together, it took all kinds of of, of of uh, parts to bring it all together in a way that was it was fully accomplished to the nth degree. They needed to fill out the chorus. That's the idea. They needed all of the parts of the chorus. This is supply it abundantly. Give it all there is with abundance. It means everything. That's the idea. In your faith, supply. Give it everything. In other words, give it all you have in this Christian living. Give it all you have. That's why it's prefaced with applying all diligence. Why well, he says that before that. Applying all diligence in your faith. Give it all you have. We're to give it all of our, all we have in our faith, all of our effort. Not in order to be saved, but because we are. Because we have what God has equipped us with. And since we are called by God, and since we are partakers of the divine nature, then in order to grow in our faith so that we remain steadfast, so that we will not be taken by every wind of doctrine that comes its way, the easy things that people say, not become the self inflicted casualty victims of false words. Peter says, give it all you have to these actions. You want to stay steadfast? Give it all you have to these things. The very definition of supply is given to us in that previous phrase, applying all diligence. Proverbs 4, verse 23 puts it this way. Watch over your heart with all diligence. Why? Because from it flow the springs of life. Guard yourself. Sounds familiar. It sounds like Paul in Acts chapter 20 to the Ephesian elders. Watch for yourselves. Watch out. Be careful. Be on guard. Give it diligence to those things. Over in chapter 3, verse 14, Peter says, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, that is... Some of the promises of God, the return of God, and what God is going to do with this earth. Since you look for these things, be diligent to be found in Him in peace, spotless and blameless. Diligent. Give it all your effort. So, what are we to be giving all our effort to? And I want to add at the beginning, as I say this, these aren't simply a list of actions separated from each other. They're all connected. They're all connected. They're connected actions. In other words, growth in faith happens along this path and not in isolated actions. Let's just look at these quickly. Number one, moral excellence. Give it all you have in moral excellence. Some of your Text: some of your versions might say virtue. Virtue. I think the translators of the New American Standard used moral excellence because those words convey the idea of virtue. A virtuous life is a life that's worthy of some kind of honor. We honor people who do the right thing, even if the outcome is perfectly and personally harmful to them. They're virtuous. They're honorable. They're someone who has an excellence to them. When I think of this word, my mind goes to personal integrity. Personal integrity. You live your life. You give all your effort. You give everything you have to being someone who is personally someone with integrity. Who you are when no one is watching. You want to know where your integrity lies before God? Let your aloneness by yourself and how you live when you're alone be the definition. That's who you really are. That's your personal integrity. When you're by yourself. He says, apply all diligence in your faith, supplying, give it all you have to your moral excellence. It's the essence of Philippians four, eight. That being the standard of life, that being the thing you strive for each and every day. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence and anything worthy of praise, you dwell on those things. That word dwell, you camp right there. You lay your stakes in those things. That's where you live. In other words, our faith is to be reflected in a tireless expression of the highest of godlike morals in all things. Tireless expression of the highest of godlike morals in all things, in all that we do. Then, secondly, he links that with this second virtue. Because he says that virtue of moral excellence, that reality and action lived out in our faith of personal integrity at the highest level is to be guided by how we think. Knowledge. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. Knowledge. He isn't talking about gathering information. In other words, use all your effort to grab all kinds of information, any kind of information you got when he when he uses that word gnosis here no he's talking about putting all effort into having your moral exercise your personal integrity be controlled by right understanding you're giving all of your effort to this to this personal integrity this godlike life that's driven by all of your effort in understanding in other words, because we are Christians, because of faith, we don't just go about in all kinds of Christian activity that's mindless, that's unthought through, that we don't think about. We just don't go about doing that. We see that in the evangelicalism all over the place, and it confuses us. We go, why would somebody do that? Well, here's the reason. They're not thinking. There's no thought to it. We're, we're controlled by our understanding. It's balanced, it's thoughtful. Remember, when we were studying 1 Corinthians, Paul said to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 20 Brethren, do not be children in your thinking. <laughs> children will do anything. I mean, they're not thinking about it. It's just whatever I can do right at the moment. That's how children think. That's how their mind they're untrained. Paul says, don't let your thinking be like that in 1 Corinthians 14.20. Don't be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil. Be When it comes to evil, yeah, don't be someone who's practiced in that. Be naive to those things in your actions. Don't be evil in your actions. But in your thinking, you be mature. You be mature. Again, Paul in Ephesians 5, verse 17, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. You see, going about doing things that we claim to be Christian realities without understanding what God has said and what God has commanded is foolish. It's just foolishness. And so Peter is saying, listen, if, you, if you're going to remain steadfast, you're not going to be taken by things that come around, then, then you're going to have to put all your effort into these things. You're going to have to put all your effort into this moral excellence, this living out of your faith with understanding. Give everything you can to your virtue, but not in an uncontrolled way. Be controlled in your thinking. Be thoughtful about it. Think through it biblically. And then he says, in your knowledge, verse 6, self-control, self-control. Now we move inward. You see, the first ones were in our relationship in one sense to God, right? These are the the God characteristics, moral excellence, understanding who God is. Now we go inward, self-control, he says in verse 6. This is what Paul was exhorting the Ephesian elders about. Right, be on guard for yourselves. This is the idea. Self-control. That's what Peter is saying here. Just what Paul was saying in Acts 20. Watch yourself. Don't let yourself be taken by your lack of self-control. Don't just let it go. You must be self-controlled. Sure. Sure, we, we're Christians. Right? Yes, yes, we are partakers of the divine nature, but listen, the old self is still there, still lingering in the background. The old lusts, the old desires, they're clamoring for our attention. They want us to go that way, and so it's still. There's a war to fight every moment. And if you're not exercising self-control, guess what? You're going to be losing desires and lusts of your old life love to flatter you it's amazing sometimes where where your mind can go isn't it driving down the road you're praying to the lord you see a picture you hear a word you smell a smell and the next thing you know you're off somewhere that is filled with debauchery in your mind why because that's the old self right there it's just waiting it's waiting the old self will praise you for things you'd never praise somebody else for. But for you, oh, you're such a great person. Look at what you're doing. You don't deserve any praise, but it'll praise you. So Paul says, listen, or Peter says, listen, you need to exercise full, you need to give it your all to self control. Self control. Here's how Paul said it in Romans 6. Many, many moons ago when we were studying that. Here's how he said it. Mortify the deeds of the flesh. That's a command. It's not a suggestion. That's a command. Mortify the deeds of the flesh. Well, listen, you're never going to do that if you're giving, if you're not giving full supply to watching yourself. Never going to mortify the deeds of the flesh. that's why it's something you can never afford to neglect. You have to always be watching yourself. Let me say, but that's difficult, yes, yes, it is. It's difficult. That's why we have the power of God. can't do it on ourselves. can't do it by ourselves. right? We have grace and peace. Peter says, multiplied to you in knowing your Savior. You have everything you need for life and for godliness. You have become a partaker of the divine nature. And so this is something that you are capable of doing. You can exercise self-control. The term I can't is not words for the Christian to say. We can. We can. That's why Peter attaches this next phrase to it. He says, in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, perseverance. You know what he's saying in actuality? Patient endurance. That's what perseverance is. Patient endurance. Two things we just don't like to have. Right, we know we don't like to have it because we all own a microwave. We want it now. All right, stick it in the microwave, heat it up, boom, let's go. I got fifteen seconds. Heard a comedian one time say, "Listen, if you, if, if you need three, if three seconds is too long for you to wait, then you're booking yourself way too tight." It's patient endurance. We we need patient endurance. Difficulty doesn't just come from within us. Difficulty just doesn't come from within. It isn't simply the battle of the flesh. Difficulties come from outside of us. We live in a fallen world. We live around each other. We're people of the church. Boy, we need patient endurance, don't we? I mean, just look around. We have to give our all to persevere. How? By remembering who we are and what we have. By remembering that this world is not our home. We do not reside here unto eternity. Remembering that all things come from our Heavenly Father who only does what is good and what is for His glory. He only does that. We never doubt that even in the smallest of ways. We never doubt that God is who he said he is and he has shown himself to be and he will accomplish all he has said. Psalm 37 verse 7 says, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way. Because of the man who carries out wicked schemes, don't fret. Yet a little while and the wicked man will be no more. And you will look carefully for his place and he will not be there. Don't fret when you look around the world. It's easy to do. I get even caught up in that in my own self, and my own heart. I begin to fret and say, man, what's going to happen? Listen, the word of God says, God says to us, don't fret when you look at the wicked. He's there today. He's gone tomorrow. You're going to look around and he won't be anywhere to be found. Here's what Jesus said to his disciples. They were troubled. John 14, he said, believe in God. Then believe also in me. You say you believe in God. Then believe what God said and believe also in me. In other words, don't fret, don't worry, stop fearing, remain steadfast. Remain steadfast. You see, you can see in all of these already, all of these as Peter is listing them out, the character of our faith, the character of our faith. This is the character of true saving faith. It is morally excellent and grounded in knowledge. It is self-controlled it has a a a control upon my inner man and it patiently endures whatever God allows And Peter says outwardly we abundantly supply notice in our perseverance godliness godliness you might even just call that god godlikeness godlikeness You read this list. You look at this list. You read it over and over again. And you say, "Man, it's strange that he would put godliness here. It seems like it should go somewhere else. You might think it'd be last, right? That this is the fruition of these. That that when all of these are done, that then that's a reflection of godliness." But when we understand it, when we think about faith and think about what God is saying to us here and what he's commanding of us, we see that there's no way to properly exercise brotherly kindness and love without being like God in it. You see, those are the next two. You cannot exercise Those other ones that reflect godliness, and you cannot exercise the ones to come without godliness. In other words, my relationship to God and my reflection of God or my God-likeness is to be right before I rightly care for those around me. This is exactly what Jesus said. What are the greatest commandments? Love God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. Have this relationship right and love your neighbor as yourself tell my relationship with God is right, this is never going to be right. And so while I'm giving it my all to be the best Christian born out of an understanding and an exercise of self-control and perseverance, I have to remember that it's all for the glory of God. It's all for His glory. It's all for His good. It's not about me. Not about me at all. Sadly, that's what we hear preached all the time. We live in the me culture, don't we? It's all about me. Even our electronics devices are called I things. It's all about us. It's all about me. I'm the king of my own kingdom. My relationship with anybody else simply goes like this. This is my kingdom. You do what I want. We see that running rampant today. If you don't agree with me, if you don't raise your hand to what I say you should raise your hand to, if you don't do what I say, then I'm going to remove you. That's the society we live in, but that's not the Christian. That's not the Christian. Before I think of anybody else, before I respond to anybody else, before I can do that rightly, I have to remember my relationship with God. I have to remember that I live to honor God. I live to glorify God. I live to tell of God and his gospel. And it's only then, it's from that that I'm able to rightly exercise Brotherly kindness. That's why Peter puts it here. In your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness. Listen, we'll never treat each other as God intends until we are thinking rightly of our relationship with God. Teach our children not to just say, I'm sorry for doing what I did. Teach our children to understand that why they did what they did to one another in sibling rivalries is because they don't see themselves rightly before God, and so they lash out at somebody else. Teach yourself in your own heart that when you sin against somebody else, it's not because just in that moment you decide to sin. It's in that moment your relationship with God has been challenged by your own flesh. And you decided to follow it rather than to follow God and honor God in what you're doing. And therefore you lashed out at somebody else. It's not, I'm sorry I hit you little brother. No, it's I'm sorry that I thought so little of you as something that God created that I thought that I could rule you and so I hit you. Listen, if our relationship with somebody else is strained, it's because our relationship with God is strained. We cannot properly exercise brotherly kindness without godliness. then peter says in your brotherly kindness love love brotherly kindness that's that's relationship between you and i or one another we're we're in the same family but love covers everybody love is for everyone all people That's the the final outflow, isn't it? That's the final and proper and growing reality of faith, isn't it? Love of the lost. Faith that's lived out, as Peter says, as we read about it in Hebrews chapter 11, is a love at the end for the lost, a desire to see others come to know Christ. It's interesting how Peter begins chapter 1, he begins with God. Right? We have a faith by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. And he ends with God when he says love because God is love. God is love. Beloved, this is how we keep from falling. This is how we remain steadfast in a world that hates Jesus Christ. This is how we do not fear what is happening around us. Hebrews 11 says, faith is the conviction of things not seen. We asked this question the other day, is God real? We don't see him. Is he real? We say yes. Well, do you believe it? Do you believe that? We'll cover this next time, but I just want to read it as we close our time. Verses eight and nine. Because Peter says, for if these are yours and are increasing. These qualities, these characters, these reflections of faith, if they're yours and increasing, that's the growth in the spiritual life. They render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. he who lacks these is blindly short-sighted. In what way? He's forgotten his purification from his former sins. He doesn't understand what God has done for him in salvation. He needs to understand what verses 1 and 4 say. If we get to this point and we're not there yet, we need to go back and study verses 1 to 4 again and really reflect on what God has done for us. Because verses 1 to 4 are the motivation behind verses 5 to 7. A living, active faith. A Hebrews 11 faith. A faith that will be steadfast in the end. God is real. We believe it. And we must live it. We must live it. That's what Peter's saying. Live it. Is it any wonder that he would say in verse 12, I'm always ready to remind you of these things. I'm always ready to go back to the very basics. He's saying, listen, we so easily throw the basics aside and say, that's so juvenile. That's so elementary. I don't need that anymore. Yes, we do. That's sometimes what we need the most because we so easily forget it. Well, let's pray together. Lord, I I thank you this morning that you have equipped your people. You've given them all they need for life and for godliness. And we collectively thank you that while we may fail you, you are faithful. You're worthy to be trusted. We know that we believe. We know that you're real open our eyes to fully grasp all that you have given to us so that we might honor and glorify you in all things. Lord, may we live and may our lives be such that the world would see Jesus Christ in us and that by means of your grace, you would save them from the coming judgment in order to live for your glory. Forgive us, Lord, for not living as we ought. Cause us to exercise our faith so that we might never be captive to false words. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.